0: Be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. My guest today did not have a formal education past high school. After working at a gas station and then a factory, he quickly realized that What he was doing was not going to provide the life that he wanted. It was a chance encounter that led him to a business opportunity where he made his first million dollars as a very young man. Over the years, he built a fortune and has shared what he learned to help others achieve an extraordinary level of success. As a result, Jim Britt is an internationally recognized keynote speaker and has been named one of the world's top 20 success coaches. He was the business partner of the late, great Jim Rohn, and the legendary Tony Robbins worked under his direction when he was getting his start. Jim has spoken to thousands of audiences all over the world, totaling well over one and a half million people. He's a student of human behavior and what really motivates us to take action and achieve great things in life and business as well as what are those things that keep us stuck. In this episode, we benefit from what he's learned and his life full of insights. He shares what he believes are the six common traits of a millionaire and why the law of attraction may not necessarily work in the way in which we think. He also shares what he observed about Tony Robbins that helped to make him such a powerful force. And we learn what it was like to work so closely with Jim Rohn. It was an absolute honor to have this conversation with such a legend, and I'm so excited to share it with you today. So let's jump straight in to the conversation. Jim Britt, welcome to Inside Out. Hey, thanks a lot, Billy. Nice to be here. Well, I am thrilled to meet you, and I can't wait to dive in and learn more about your story and doing my research, I always love learning about the person that I'm going to meet before I meet them because I feel like I already know you. And that's the cool thing about doing a podcast. Let's go back in time. And I want to talk about your childhood because you, you came from humble beginnings. You talk, you've talked about your days picking cotton, which is not an easy job. I know from people who've done cotton picking that it's not an easy job, but you were doing it as a young, young kid. So, how do those memories today? When you look back, how did that help inform the person you are today? Going back to the early, early days when you were picking cotton.
1: Well, I, I started picking cotton. I started going to the cotton fields with the family when I was, I don't know, maybe two or three years old, and I would, I would ride on the back of my mom's or my dad's cotton sack. So as they pull it through the field, I'm sitting on the back of it. You know, when I turned six years old, now I'm old enough to work. So. <laughs> Today, we to arrest my parents for child labor, but, but we all, uh, you know, my uh, other three siblings, uh, we all picked cotton. Uh, we went to the fields during the season, and that's what we did. And we got paid two cents a pound for, for picking oh. cotton. And cotton doesn't weigh very much. So it took a lot of cotton to, to weigh anything. So I remember my first day picking 50 pounds of cotton, wow. and I was probably maybe eight years old. I worked hard all day long and I remember them putting it on the scales and I made myself a dollar. <laughs> that was, so that was pretty, pretty awesome.
0: What did that teach you? Do you think now, now looking back and reflecting, what what, what were the lessons that you learned from that experience?
1: Well, it, you know, it, it taught me probably a couple of things. One is it, it taught me the discipline of working and, and working hard, have a work ethic. But the other thing it really taught me was You never really get ahead in life financially using your own two hands and and working hard. Nothing wrong with working hard, but that type of work is not ever going to get you anywhere. It might make you a living. And if you love doing it, that's okay. But it taught me, I think it taught me a lot uh, in that area. And it also taught me I didn't want to pick cotton the rest of my life.
0: (laughs) Well, you learned the lesson, but as you've described your story and, and the things that I've read and listened to, you know, you didn't get a high school diploma. You you worked in a gas station and then in a factory. And that journey led to you finding a new opportunity where you could do something that didn't require just your two hands. Can you share the story of, you know, I know you had a child at a young age, you got married at a young age. And so you had to put food on the table. Share the story of how you navigated the waters of trying to get away from using your hands, you know, gas station. You you were doing something to put food on the table, but you knew that wasn't the long-term solution. Looking back on it, the thing
1: that really, I think, got me ahead in life was when I was picking cotton, I always try to outdo what I did the day before. And it was like, I was always trying to be the best I could be, not the best in the field of beat anybody else, but the best I could be. When I went from there to my first I guess real job where somebody actually paid me a hourly wage pumping gas. While I was there for a couple of years, the one thing I wanted to do is be the best I could be. And I really felt that I was the best gas station attendant in the whole world. I really felt that. And people they they loved coming in. They wanted to wait me to wait on them. And because I did I just took my job with a lot of pride and you know, i sweep out their car and I'd check their oil and check their tires and do all this stuff. And of course, you can't get that done today. You can't even no. air now costs you a dollar a month or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, Times have changed, yeah. But uh, but you know, I will never forget the guy coming in. Uh, my dream job was working at the factory, and the guy coming in that day and and he asked me a question. He said, "What are you doing working in this gas station?" Mm-hmm. I said, "Well, it's my job." And I said, "I'm pretty good at it." And he said, "No, you're not pretty good. You're really good." And he mm-hmm. said, "In fact," You see that guy over there, the guy I worked with? He said, if he comes out to wait on me, he said, I just drive away. He said, I'm waiting for you. I'm going, Really? He said, Yeah. He said, You're so good, man. He said, You should be working in the factory. And I said, Well, kind of my dream job. But I said, "Um, I don't have a high school diploma. He said, Well, I'm a supervisor. And he said, I think if you can pass this dexterity test, he says, I believe I can get you in, uh, even though you don't have the diploma. And sure enough, he did. And we had 9,000 employees there. And after, it took me about six months, and they rated you on an efficiency rating. We wired telephone switchboards. So if you had this amount of wiring to do, and it took you eight hours, if you did it in less time, then you got, you know, if you did it 25%, you know, in six hours, then you, you rated uh, 125%. And they put you in a little bonus pool, which was very little. Within six months, I was doing, my best month was 457%. So I was doing the job of 4.57 people. And I was number one in the factory. But yet, it didn't get paid that much more. I mean, a few dollars, literally. And, but as a result of that, I think it led me to the next step. And I was invited to attend a meeting, take a look at a business opportunity, it required four thousand dollars to get started. I had nine dollars. I didn't know anybody that had any more money than I did, and I went to twenty-three banks and loan companies before I found someone to loan me four thousand uh, dollars. It took me two weeks and tons of applications, and I got started. And I mean, I tried hard, but I didn't. I didn't know anything about sales, anything about business. I didn't know what I was doing. The only training I had was uh, it was a direct selling company. And the head guy, he said, your job is talking to people. He said, if you talk a little, you learn a little. He said, if you talk a lot, you'll learn a lot. And I said, Well, how much is a little? He said, one a day. And a lot is ten a day. I said, I'll do the ten. Mm-hmm. So I quit my job at the factory, went full time, not knowing what I was doing, set a goal to talk to ten a day, every day, which I did for the next year. And during that year, I lost my home, both my cars, my furniture. I had a wife, a child. Fifteen cents in my pocket, and a notice on the door from the sheriff saying you have to be out in five days. So that's where I was, and and, and the one thing I knew I wasn't going to do was quit. And quite, uh, I, I don't know how it happened. Somebody came by, they knocked on my door during that five day period, or, or at the five day period, and I assumed it was a bill collector of some kind. So I figured I, I don't have anything, so I can go to the door. So but it was a guy from the company and he said I understand you're a hard worker but you're not making any money. And we sat down for 2 hours and he taught me what I was doing wrong and what I needed to eliminate and my business took off like a rocket. And over the next 12 months I earned myself just under a million bucks. Wow. So, you know, it can go from <laughs> zero to hero pretty fast.
0: So, what did he teach you? I mean, what what if you can recall, what were the things, what were the lessons you learned from him? that you weren't doing? Two things, which, I, which I,
1: I still use today. Number one, he asked me, he said, how do you know if you have a viable prospect? I said, I don't know. I guess if they buy from you. He said, no. How do you know if there's even a possibility of buying from you, that they even have an interest? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, obviously you don't. He said, you've talked to 3,650 people in the last year and got that many no's. He said, so obviously you don't know. He said, well, do I just need to talk to more people? He said, no, you need to stop talking. He said, talking is not what you need to do. He said, you need to listen. He said, but here's how you know if you have a viable prospect. Don't ever forget this. He said, number one, do they have a pain or a problem? And number two, do they want to solve it? And number three, can you solve it?
0: Mm-hmm. If
1: they got a pain or a problem. If they don't have one, you don't have a prospect. If they don't want to solve that pain, if they do have one. They don't solve it. You don't have a prospect. And he said, and if you can't solve it, you don't have a prospect. So he said, you've always got to find out that. I said, well, how do I find out they got a pain? He said, stop talking and start listening. I said, listening to what? He said, ask questions, listen to the answers. I said, what kind of questions? He said, it doesn't matter. (laughs) And I'm going, I'm getting confused now. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you could ask somebody, hey, do you, do you work around here? You meet them someplace in a coffee shop or something. Do you work around here? Yeah, I work down the street. What do you do? I do this. Do you like your job? Yeah, I, I kind of like my job. How long have you been there? Do you have? A, uh, are you married? Uh, do you have children, or how old are your children? And yeah, I mean, he said, get in the conversation. He said, if you ask enough questions, they'll unload every pain that they have. Mm-hmm. And then if you can solve it, you got a prospect. Yeah. But he said you've got to be able to solve that pain. So then he said. This is something I never forgot. He said, if you live your life this way, he said, you'll never lack for anything. Friends, money, you'll have it all. He said, every time you meet somebody, doesn't matter where they are, could be in an airplane, coffee shop, party, wherever, at the park, wherever you meet somebody, he said, always be thinking, what can I do to help this person? He said, not what what you can sell them. That's not what you're doing. He said, what can you do to help them? And he said, that'll teach you the skill of listening and the skill of asking questions and finding out what pain they're going through. And he said, if you can help them, help them. He said, not to get paid for it. He said, maybe you can help them with something else in their life. Maybe it's an idea you give them. He said, you don't have to get paid from everybody. You'll get paid plenty if you have that philosophy. And I've always had that. I've had that since that day.
0: Man, what a powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing. And the giver's heart is such a vital lesson to have that and to listen too, because unless you're doing a good job of listening, it's going to be hard to know how you can give to somebody or how you can help somebody. And it starts with using your ears the way they're intended, much more than your mouth, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you think about it. I recently went into uh, a car dealership. I wanted to get a, I'd already looked it up. I wanted to get a new Infinity one that would tow a boat. You know, I go in and the salesperson comes out and how are you doing today? Uh, what can we help you with? What are you looking for? So he's qualifying me, you know, am I looking for the QX50 or QX60 or QX80 or what am I looking for? You know, yeah. do I want a sports car or, or what is it? And I told him and then he said, what color? And I said, I don't know, what colors did he have? He said, well, let's go look. You know, so he's, he's, he's asking questions and listening and then directing me based upon that. It's like you go into a doctor. The doctor is going to say, well, where does it hurt? He's not going to just walk in and go, okay, here's a prescription for you for whatever, you know, whatever you need. He's going to say, where does it hurt? And he's going to examine. He's going to make a diagnosis, which is what you're doing when you're helping somebody solve a pain. That's kind of the way I look at life.
0: Yeah, no. And I think it's a great perspective. One of the things that I love exploring is commonly held beliefs that ch- are challenged. And so I want to explore a couple of those things with you. First one is the law of attraction. And I want to get your take on the law of attraction and how it may not be what we think it is. And then the second thing is goal setting. And I know you you're not a huge goal setter, which is counter to what a lot of people say. So let's talk about law of attraction and goal setting. Okay. I
1: used to teach in some of my seminars the law of attraction.
0: But When you think about it, when
1: you look at the results out there, if the law of attraction worked the way it's been proposed that it would work, then we'd all be living a life of our dreams on some yacht in the Caribbean. What I discovered is that you don't actually attract the things into your life as much as when you make a decision, your mindset changes, which your view of the world changes. So let's say you want to be a millionaire and you started today. Say, I want to be rich or I want to be whatever it is, you know, I want to be a millionaire, let's use that as an example. Once you've decided that that's what you want, now you're going to see opportunities. But if you haven't decided that, why would you even see opportunities? If I don't want to go fishing, why would I see fishing poles everywhere or have mm-hmm. that view in my, in my mind? So you're not going to find the opportunities to accomplish what you want until you have the mindset that changes your view of the world. And it also changes the view that the world has of you. So now they're going to support you. You're going to, you're going to become attractive to certain types of people and individuals and circumstances that's going to guide you where you want to go. So in a sense, yes, it's it's working, but in a, I, I think it's a, a little different twist on it. I think it's, if you're going to think the law of attraction is going to bring something to you, just mysteriously materialize, well, why not be driving down the freeway and say, well, I want to... I want a burger on my console and it appears for you. <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> so you've got to go out and get it, but you've got to have the right mindset. People make the decision, but then they change it. So they're getting exactly what they've decided in their life, but it's a series of things that's taken them off course and they're getting what they don't want, even though they don't think they decided that, but, it, but they did a little bit at a time. So does the law of attraction work? Yes and no, but not if, if you don't work, no, <laughs> and if you don't work on letting go of the things that's keeping you away from the firm decision that you've made that's created your mindset so you can stay in that that space um, then it will never work. so a lot of it's up to you.
0: What about goals? because I know you 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 haven't been huge on goal setting. Why is that? <laughs> I guess whatever
1: works for people, but uh, when people say, do you set goals? I say, I, no. Do you write your goals down? No, I, I don't have to write them down. I remember them. But to me, what I've discovered over the years is that that foundational decision I was just talking about, uh, that creates it, it creates a foundation for the incremental steps to getting there. And to me, the goals are the incremental steps to getting there. It's not, the goal is not the front runner, it's the decision. So if you haven't made the decision, the goal is just wasted. If Mm -hmm. you've got a vision board and you got boats and cars and money and relationships or all of the things that you want in your life, a skinny body, different things, it's not going to happen just because you've got it up there. It's not going to happen until you've decided and got the mindset necessary to accept nothing less than that. Mm-hmm. And then the goals just become an incremental step. So I don't need to write them down. I mean, maybe I'll make a list of uh, things I got to do today. Um, but but mostly I know what I've got to do. As far as writing goals down and planning out 12 months from now and five years from now, I have no plan. I got to plan for the day.
0: Well, I think part of it also is it comes down to having these core set of traits. And you highlight this as like, these are the traits for success or the traits of a millionaire, and it starts with the desire and the and the and the decision. Maybe you could outline those. I think there's six of them. Um, mm-hmm. wh- what are each of those, and and why are they so important?
1: Well, a first step you mentioned there is desire to change, and I think a lot of people have a desire, but the, it's kind of a passing desire. They they don't hold true to it. They don't take it to the next step. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go out on the street corner and on wall street or wherever you want to go in any city usa or any place in the world and ask people if they want to make more money and almost everybody's going to say yes even if they're multimillionaires or billionaires they're still looking to make more money or the homeless person on the street is looking to have money so everybody's got a desire but will everybody do what it takes to bring that desire to reality and that starts with um you know, having the desire and and wanting enough of a change in your life to actually make the decision. And when I look back on my life, when I made the decision to start that business that night that I sat and listened to that meeting, I decided not only am I going to do this, but I'm going to get rich doing it. And I had so many times that I could have turned around and just walked away. And looking back on it, I should have in some ways. I mean, how do you end up a year later, no job, no vehicles, no house, a a wife, a child, and fifteen cents in your pocket, not knowing where you're going to go next? How how do you do that, or why do you do that? (laughs) But I did because I made the decision, and I was not willing to retreat. I just was not willing, and I totally believe that's that's the reason that my view of the world was different. And suddenly, somebody shows up to help me, and so. That decision is so important. You know, we just had a, a new year here a few mm-hmm. days ago. People set New Year's resolutions. Well, what happens by the 15th of the month? Somebody sets a New Year's resolution to join a gym and work out and get in shape. And uh, by the 15th, they're sitting on the sofa, eat potato chips and watching TV you know? <laughs> and, and wondering why they're not losing weight or it could be anything in their life. But it's because the decision wasn't firm enough. You didn't have the, you didn't have that foundation that says, I'm going to do this no matter what. That's what Mm. it takes. And if you look at your life and the things that you've done in your life, the things that you have in your life, you probably had times when you said, I'm doing this no matter what.
0: Mm -hmm. Uncompromising decision. You you have, it starts with burning, burning desire and then having this uncompromising, this decision that is, you're going to do it no matter what. I love it. Okay, yeah. so 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 yeah. yeah, so so you make this decision, and then you you have this mindset right. that you're going to do it no matter what, and then and then what are the what are the other what are the other components? The third step is to take action mm-hmm. based on
1: that decision, and you know some so many people will say they made a decision, and they're getting ready to get going. They're getting ready to start. They're getting ready to as soon as I get this done or that done or my website done or my business card printed or whatever it is. They're always waiting because they're afraid to get started, but you got to move, and you know, it's the mark of a good entrepreneur. Maybe you can't do everything, but what could you do today to get going? Let's say if you're starting a business, or if you've got this vision of starting a business, what can you do right now that's going to move you toward that? We we spend so much time doing meaningless stuff. A woman I communicated with the other day, she said I spend eight hours a day on Facebook, mm-hmm. and she said I don't know why, <laughs> and I said. <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> I said, it's tension relieving. Mm. I said, you go on there to relieve tension. But I said, it, it, is, it, is it achieving what you want to achieve in your life? So, and and that's true. You know, it's either tension relieving or it's achieving what you want to achieve. It's moving you toward that. We live in a black and white world. We don't live in a gray world. It's either, it, you're either moving toward what you want or away from it all the time based on that you know, that decision you made. So that's step number three is you've got to take action. And it's just like when I asked, you know, how many people should I talk to? And he said, 10 a day is a lot. And I said, I'll do 10. And, and you got to take action. Was it easy? No, we didn't have a tracking system or anything back then. This was yeah. like in 1970. So I had, I had a pocket uh, that I'd put 10 beans in my pocket every morning. And every time I talked to somebody, I flipped a bean away. That's how I tracked my 10 a day. And when those 10 beans were gone, I could go home. I love it. And sometimes my wife would search me to make sure I hadn't hidden some. You know? so, <laughs> so she, she said, you got to make some money. So you're going to go out and talk to people. But, you know, you got to take action. Well, looking back on that 3,650 minimum, I did more than that some days. That many people told me no. And somebody recently asked me how I handle rejection. I said, I did that a long time ago. You know? <laughs> yeah. I had more no's than anybody will ever get. You know? So it taught me a lot, though. It taught me how to handle rejection. It taught me a lot about people. It taught me about myself. It taught me about self-discipline. A lot of things, tenacity, not giving up. A lot of things It taught me that, uh, and, and it was the worst year of my life. And now looking back on it's it one of the best years of my life. So Yeah.
0: You know, well, you took uh, action and you, and you were bold about it. You didn't just take the one a day. You did the 10 a day, a day. And, and, and it forced you to step out of your comfort zone, which I know that's the next, the next thing step out of your comfort zone. And I know another one is, is not letting go or or, or being able to, excuse me, being able yeah. to let go. And then the, the final one being not quitting. So maybe you could share a little bit about each of those.
1: Yeah. Well, this, uh, the next one up is, is, is being bold. Okay. And, you know, Wimpy people don't get ahead. <laughs> you know, you, you got you to step out and get in the spotlight. So the, the spotlight's not going to track you down. You got to take center stage and be willing to do things that other people aren't willing to do. When I would run out of somebody to talk to, I'd go down the street knocking on doors. And, you know, I did that many times. I even called wrong numbers on the phone. I would just pick up the phone and dial a number and get on. And my, my record was seven minutes talking to a wrong number. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a great recruiting tool or a sales tool, but man, I wouldn't give up. I just tried to figure out ways to to get in my ten for the day, you know. So you got to be bold, and and you learn from those things, you know. Oh, I've, I've always asked myself when I do things, whether it's in front of an audience or one on one, how did I do it? How could I have done that better? And sometimes you can't find anything any better than what you did. other times you find something you could improve a little bit. So the next thing is being bold. The next step you mentioned is being willing to step out of your comfort zone and endure some pain. Was it painful to talk to 10 a day? Oh, my God, yes. Uh, Was it uh, painful to talk to strangers? I was a factory worker working in an area that I only knew about 15 people. And I only had two or three people other than family outside of that that I knew. So to go out and find 10 new people a day and start conversations was painful. I mean, really painful. But I was willing to do it because I decided to do it. And I I saw what's on the other side. I saw what I could accomplish if I just keep at it. Now, they say that practice makes perfect. But what I learned back then is that if you're practicing the wrong thing, you're perfecting the wrong thing. <laughs> so I needed, I needed to find out what he shared with me later. Sure. And now I'm, I, I started practicing the right thing. So, and then I got better and better at that. You know? So uh, stepping out of that comfort zone, you know the you that you are now, uh, whoever's listening or watching here, you can't have the things that you, that you want in your life for the future without becoming somebody different. Every life level, every income level requires a different you. It it really does. When you look back and you look at your life, little changes sometimes, sometimes big changes. Um, So you got to be willing to endure that pain. And we always weigh out those pain, those pains, pain of changing versus the pain of staying where I am. And most people choose the pain of staying where they are because it's lesser than changing and stepping out of that comfort zone. Um, because we're so accustomed to it. It's just it's just who we are. And if you like that, that's okay. No judgment. You know, if you like being there and and you want to stay where you are, that's fine. If you don't, it's not fine.
0: They want the familiarity. They they want the familiarity, they want the comfort. And and I think just naturally as a as a species, we 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 want to be in a place where we have some reassurance that we're not in harm's way, that we're not risking our, our life in some way. And so we want to go. And, and live in a more protected, in a more safe space. But if you want to stretch the boundaries, you want to keep going, and you want to grow, guess what? You got to get out of that comfort zone. What about letting yeah, go? I mean, you, you, can put, uh, you can put a sheet
1: over your head and have somebody bring you three meals a day. That's okay. That's what you like. <laughs> That's right. Comfortable. It's in the corner right. someplace. You know? The next thing is, is that I, um, I was on a panel um, a couple of years ago. And somebody asked me, what's the one thing that I've learned over the years that's the most important thing? It's been the most beneficial to me in my business and my personal life. And without any hesitation, I said the ability to let go, learning to let go. Because here's what happens. Here's why people don't follow through. I discovered this probably 37 years ago, 38, something like that. You know, we all have habit patterns that Become second nature. Uh, the positive ones would be hard to live without. Walking, talking, how you put your pants on in the morning, which leg you put in first, try the other one to see how comfortable it is. It's, it's different. Driving a vehicle, riding a bicycle, you learn those things. You don't have to relearn them once you once you've learned it one time. So there's probably hundreds of habits that we have that are second nature that that are positive, and we just go about our business, don't think about it at all. Well, on the other side of that coin, there's negative habit patterns. That have become second nature and we don't know we're doing them. So we're trapped in this self-imposed prison (laughs) that that we don't know we're in. We've created it unknowingly through repetition, through emotional impact, through just learning things over the years. It programs our subconscious and we don't realize it's happening. It I'll give you a good example, fellow I was talking to just recently. He said, I haven't been able to pay my bills on time or fully each month for 25 years. And I went, wow, that's a long time. And I said, What are you going to do about it? And he says, um, Thinking about cutting my overhead. Mm-hmm. I said, Well, there's nothing wrong with that. But I said, In probably two, three months to the outside, you'll be back, not be able to pay your bills on time or fully. And he said, Well, how do you know that? And I said, Because you're addicted to it, you're programmed to do that and i said you'll live out the rest of your life not being able to pay your bills on time unless you figure out what that program is and you break it or somebody else helps you figure it out and that's what we do we go through life with these habit patterns that are not taking us where we want to go and we don't know we have we don't even know we have it so i focus a lot of my work on on that helping people to discover what that habit pattern is or series of them but once you discover you have that pattern, let's say you're always late for appointments. I know people that's habitually ten minutes late, fifteen minutes late, and, and and you wonder why why they are. I know I know why they are. It's attention, but they don't think that. They don't even know that. But it's it's atten- even though it's negative attention, they're looking for attention. So why would you be late? <laughs> Otherwise, well, I'm really busy, or this happened, or this. It's all attention. So once you understand that you have it now it becomes a conscious act. You make the choice to do it now. You're going to make a choice to be late. And before you were just doing it didn't know it because it was mm. second nature to you. So there's so many things that we do that way. So I help them discover what that cycle is. I call it an addictive cycle because it literally is an addiction uh, based on a core belief. And more than that, how to how to break it.
0: Programming addictions can be discovered through Self observation, I I believe, is what you is what one of the things that you talk about. So let's dissect this because this is you're like, now you're like, I'm like so juiced up for this topic, Jim, because I'm fascinated by this. Because to your point, we all have these ingrained programming addictions, as you say, that we've built over time through repetition and doing something over and over and over again. But really, what we should be doing is retraining our subconscious in a way. That will allow us to break through and break away from habits and programming that's not benefiting us. So let's talk about self observation, but then beyond that, how else do you retrain the subconscious?
1: I'll give you an example of a, uh, a woman in one of my workshops. Once um, we were talking about uh, financial success and business success, and she said. Well, I I can never be successful. And I said, Why is that? She said, Because of my father. And I said, Really? How so? And she said, Well, from a young age, he he always told me I'd never amount to anything. I would never measure up to my two siblings. I would never go anywhere in life. I would never be anybody. And she said, He hit me with that daily. And she said, He basically verbally abused me. And so that's why I can't be successful. And I said, "Oh, I said, well, where, where's your father now?" And she's about maybe fifty years old, and she says, um, "Well, he died ten years ago." I said, "Oh, well, who's abusing you now?" She said, "I don't understand the question." I said, "Well, he's not here, so who's abusing you now?" She said, "I still don't understand it." And I said, "Well, I'll leave here and I'll come back in a few minutes, you know." And I went over to work with somebody else in the workshop and. About 20 minutes, I came back, and I said, so who's abusing you now? She said, I still don't understand it. I said, well, think about it some more. Came back again. And she finally, at the fourth time back, she said, you mean I'm abusing me? I'm going, what do you think? I don't know. I leave again. I come back, and she goes, as soon as I walked up, she said, oh, my God. She said, I'm carrying on his abuse. She said, I'm abusing me. Based on what he taught me, you see that's that's the good example of programming. So this addictive cycle, how it how it takes place is every experience we have, positive or negative, we attach a feeling to it. And if you look back at your life, if I ask a crowd of a thousand people or or one, doesn't matter, what's something in your life as far back as you can remember that was really negative to you, really hurt you, and people come up with it just like that. Because it's there, you know, we can remember highlights in our life, a trip someplace, but what happened on the trip, we only remember that one little thing that was a highlight, we remember going, but we don't remember the rest of it. So it it, our brain works that way. And it brings it to the surface uh, to remind us of things. So, so what happens is that experience, you attach a feeling to it. So when her dad said, you'll never amount to anything, you'll never measure up to your siblings, every time it hurt. Well, as a kid, you don't want to hurt. And as a kid, you're looking to your parents as your, your guardians. You're, they're supposed to lead you. They're supposed to be the authority and tell you what to do. They should know better. So you listen to them. So you you shove that feeling down because you don't want to feel that way. But if you hear it enough, you start to think, well, maybe, maybe I will never amount to anything. Maybe he's right. And the more you think that, the more you start to believe it. And the more you believe it and experience it at the same time, the more it becomes a core belief. And we always act upon our core belief. We will do almost anything to prove to ourselves and the outside world that what we believe is true, Mm. even to our detriment. So that cycle, when you act upon that core belief, it creates a result. So you got the feeling, the thinking, the belief, the core belief, the action, Goes back to create a result that supports the initial yeah. experience. So every time you try to try and fail to accomplish something and you don't know that you're locked into that, but if you try and fail, you strengthen the original experience.
0: That's mm-hmm. why people get trapped and can't get out of it. So, what is the best approach to break free? From that type of cycle, because it's almost like you're—it's like confirmation bias. Like if you believe something, you're going to go confirm it. But you're going to look for ways to make it be true. And like as you said, it's a core belief. And so you're going to almost figure out ways to make whatever it is that your core belief is a reality. And, yeah. and then, as you said, it just kind of goes around as a cycle. What is the best approach? How, I mean, you got to first recognize it. But once you recognize it, then how do you how do you break free? I
1: realized one thing is that all beliefs are false. None of them are true until you decide it's true. Then it's only true for you. Mm. So (laughs) never forget seeing the Dalai Lama one time and and a fellow in the group said, um, which religion is the correct religion to the exclusion of all other religions? And without any hesitation, he said, there should be as many religions on earth as there are people. Cause everybody's got a different view. Yeah. You know? So it's the same way with anything. Everybody's got a little different view and, and it's based on their, their upbringing and their core beliefs. So, um, so one of the ways is to realize that it's not that hard to, to change a belief, but first you got to understand that you've decided that that belief is true. And if it's not taking you where you want to go, it definitely needs to change. And we've all changed beliefs before. I mean, it's It's a decision away, really, is what it is. Not that hard. It's harder to break some of those habits that's holding that belief in place. But, you know, letting go, if I'm I'm holding this calculator in my hand, just because I have it in my hand doesn't mean I have to carry it in my hand for the rest of my life. I can lay it down. And just because you've had an experience in your past that was less than uplifting doesn't mean you have to carry it with you for the rest of your life you can mm-hmm. lay it down, set it aside. It happened, not going to change that. But you can change how you're attached to it. Because we look at it as a form of protection. We think if we hang on to that, it'll keep us from ever having it happen again. If we hang on to that breakup in the relationship that my husband or my wife hurt me because they they asked for a divorce, if we hang and i'll never go out and and look for another loving relationship until that person proves that they're worthy of it well good luck you're not going to find one because you're not open for that you know you you've made a decision to 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 remain closed so how's somebody going to feel your heart even so it's like we hang onto that stuff thinking it's going to uh, protect us when in reality it's destroying us mm-hmm. so it's just once you've decided what you want to do with your life in any area of life, what you want to accomplish or whatever, realize that every action you take is now going to move you either toward it or away from it based on that decision. So, you know, if you want to get healthy and you know you need to eat right, and eat organic or quit eating meat or whatever it is that you do, then that's a choice that you make. And you go, OK, is this good for me or not good for me? Well, it's not bad. Yes, it's either good or bad one or the other. It's not gray. It's not in the middle. So I mean it may not be as bad, but still it's a, it's on one side of the scale <laughs> or the other. Right. Um,
0: it's a black and white thing, right? We're not yeah, in a gray world we're in a black any and
1: black habit pattern. Um, so the act you mentioned self-observation, you know, you can become aware that you're angry or anxious or upset or feeling depressed. You can become aware of that. Being broke, all of that, but it does nothing. It's just an awareness. But but what are you going to take it from there? I can mm-hmm. be aware that, that that I'm broke and got no money, but what's that going to do for me? If I stay aware enough, it's going to bury me in that awareness and keep me right where I am. So you've got to take it to the, what I call self observation, and that's separating yourself from the emotion. So when you feel something, that's not loving toward yourself or others, stop and look at yourself and you go, hmm, there I go getting angry again. Who wins in an argument anyway? <laughs> and I'll guarantee you, let's say anger, for example, even depression, most any negative emotion. If you stop and observe yourself, it will go away because you separated yourself from it. And the, the reason it's there is you're attached to it. Right. <laughs> so See it for what it is. It's just energy. It's just like if you got inside you, nobody loves me. It's like this ball of energy inside you that's projecting out to the world to prove that nobody loves you. But it's just energy. It's just experiences and energy. So why not let it go? Why not move on? It's like a path through the field. Well, if you continue on the path you're on, yeah, it may be comfortable and the path's worn down and there's no spooky things around the corner because you've been there a hundred times. But over here is a so much shorter route to get where you want to go. It's all grown up in weeds and bushes and you got to cut down some bushes and wade through the weeds and there might be a snake in there or whatever. But I tell you what, if you go that direction, the other path will wither away from lack of attention. It'll grow over and you'll have a new path to where you want to go. It's Just got to look at life. A little simpler.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just gonna say speaking of new paths, one of the things I'm fascinated by, and you highlight this, is the role that memory channels play and the dendrites and thinking of like a new experience is like a new root. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and why that's okay. so important.
1: Inside your brain is uh, little memory channels called dendrites. And this is you can look it up, it's scientific stuff, but they look a little bit like uh, tree roots. So let's say you, as a child, you see a, you know, an airplane for the first time up in the sky. You don't know what it is. You've never seen one. So you point at it. And the mom or the dad goes, it's an airplane. And the next time you see it, you point at it and you think about it. And about the third time you go, airplane. So now that's programmed in. That's an airplane. But later in life, you see a big plane, a small plane, a helicopter, or this or that. Those are little other little routes that come off of that. And maybe you've ridden in a helicopter. That's a that's another part of that same route. So it just it keeps growing or creating new ones if it's a new experience. And and the more you think something, the more it reinforces that route, that dendrite. So I tell people, really, living a better life is a battle of the dendrites. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds more exciting, you know. I killed a dendrite.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I love that, man. You've been. Doing what you're doing for, for quite a while and, and, and impacting human beings' lives in a very meaningful way, changing their life and helping them grow and enrich themselves. But you've also been exposed to some of the greatest motivators and thought leaders on the planet. Jim Rohn, obviously, being one. And he, I know he is a friend and a mentor. Wonder, you know, there's probably countless lessons that you learned from him. What stands out the most? I mean, what. Might surprise the audience that you learned from him that they may not even know? Well, I knew I met Jim in 1968
1: and we became close friends and we ended up in business together for about eight years. I actually hired Tony Robbins and Tony, he worked for us for about four years, four and a half, something like that. And he looked up to Jim Rohn as his mentor. I was kind of his trainer, coach. He worked under my direction. So what I learned from Jim, you know, when, when Jim and I formed a partnership, he was not well known. In fact, he was all, he was really kind of an unknown, except for I met him within uh, this direct selling company. He was known with that small circle of people, but not outside that. And we moved into Southern California, right, right in Orange County, and opened an office over there. And we started promoting events, basically Jim Rohn events. So I started out promoting him. Is how I got into the speaking field, and you know, I, I learned I learned a lot of things from Jim, and I and I always thought that Jim kind of had the corner on all good material. <laughs> you know? And and I thought I can, I can I can't go I can't go speak anywhere because I don't know what to speak about. Of course, I, I didn't know anything either. I did the only thing I knew is what I'd heard from him. So I didn't know there was anything outside of what he was teaching that was of any value. I think we we learn from each other in in some ways but he was such a great presenter and speaker and he got to people in a big way. And uh, so I'm talking to him one day and I said, Jim, I I want to develop a hour long talk. How do I do that? And he said, well, tell me your story. How'd you get here? And so I did as as best I could. It took me about two minutes. (laughs) And he said, okay, that's two minutes. He said, uh, he said, Study that a little bit and expand upon it a little bit more. Not too much detail, but expand upon it. He said, what are you passionate about? What topics? And I didn't know anything. I said, goal setting, personal development, and attitude. He said, okay, go study those things. And, and I didn't know where to go study them. You know, but I, I started buying books and reading books and, and uh, took a speed reading course. And, and uh, my, my record is uh, 10 books in one day. Wow. With almost 100% comprehension. So I'd at least read a book every day, at least. I went through about 4,000 books and, and I don't think I, I I, I never used any of Jim Rohn's material ever. And I've never used, I I can say I've never used any of the other stuff that I learned, but not in the way I learned it. Um, It's just like pieces of here and there that, that, that made this work, you know? So Uh, But one of the other things I learned from Jim, he said, if you want to become an effective speaker, he said, become a gatherer of stories and learn to tell those stories. And he said, and learn to tell them in a a visual way where people see the vision of that story. And he said, see, if you if you make a point and tell a story, they'll remember the story and they'll remember the point. But if Mm. you just make the point, they won't remember it. He said, mm-hmm. so you can either tell a story, make a point, or make a point and tell a story. And I said, where do you get stories? He said, everywhere. I'm going, Well, where's everywhere? He said, Your kids. He said, you get stories from your kids. You get them, to read the newspaper, you you get them from talking to the, the limo driver or the person that checks you in at the hotel or where he said, there's stories everywhere. They can be short, they can be long. But he says, Become a good storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I took that to heart and uh and started learning to tell stories and gather stories and figure out how to tell them that would actually help make the point, you know? So I think I learned that from Jim more than anything. And my style, I can't say that I copied his style. My style is similar to his, um, but I, I, my content is different than his, but my style is similar, but I think that's just my style. You know, I just, I'm a low key person. I do a seminar about like I'm talking to you right now. So I'm not, I'm not revved up on the stage. I can sit on a bar stool for four hours and talk. So mm-hmm. just the way I am. Jim used to stand with his arm on the podium and and spend three hours standing there beside the podium. Yeah. So, um, and that that's kind of what I learned. And. You know, I don't get into the PowerPoints and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's just, you know. It's,
0: it's I, a casual, it's a casual conversation, almost conversational and a storytelling. And, and stories, let's face it, that's the emotion. Yeah. It, it's interesting you say, you know, you got this laid back sort of casual vibe. Tony Robbins is not that. I mean, he's an no. superintendent. super. <laughs> so what did you, I mean, I'm sure I know you 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 hired him and you mentored him. What did you learn from him? And And give us a flavor of like how Tony was in the early days. Well, Tony, Tony was
1: uh, somewhat of a rebel in the early days. <laughs> he was also a, a, a darn good salesperson. I think it was his second month. I had 300 full-time salespeople. And Tony's second month, he was number one in the company. Wow! Um, and he just absorbed information. He went through my training program of how to go out and sell tickets and do presentations and that type of thing. Man, he would execute. You'd give him a book to read. The next morning he came in and he had read it and he understood it and he would quote it. And so Tony absorbed information and he was always really good at presenting himself. I mean, he wasn't uh, personally in in the early stages, wasn't like he is now. You know, he he, he was more slumped over. He was overweight. He was sloppily dressed uh, when, I, when I first met him. You know, I think he was wearing white socks with a pair of shoes and a suit that didn't fit. <laughs> you know, Tony's six foot seven. So he's, he's like big doggy kid, you know, at 18, 19 years old, when I hired him, he watched everybody else. And we kind of had a theme there that if you're going to work for us. You got to dress up, you got to look good. You got to, you know, you got to look professional and business-like, you got to wear a suit, a tie and all of that stuff that everybody did back then. So I would never, ever have thought that Tony is going to do what he's done ever. Interesting. But at the same time, I can see how and why he did it because he just doesn't, he's a bulldog. He just doesn't give up. He just keeps moving, you know? And, and, you know, he's gosh, he was on that television infomercial. I heard like eight years, it was running every five minutes, someplace in the world. Well, you get a little, you get a little recognition from that, you know, Yeah. Get well known. Um, But uh, Tony's done a heck of a job. I mean, gosh, he's done something nobody else has ever been able to do so far surpassed what I've done or Jim Rohn's done or anybody else I know in the industry. Uh, and I know most of the, the especially the old timers has been around for a long time, but um, yeah, it was an interesting experience and we still stay in touch uh, off and on. And um, yeah, we're-
0: How did you, how did you meet him? I mean, how did he, he was a young 18, 19 year old kid. Did he come? Did you find him? Like, how did that all happen Somebody's-
1: somebody sold him a ticket. One of our office managers sold him a ticket to the, uh, a three hour seminar, of Jim Rohn. And, uh, he just flipped over Jim Rohn. And then the, um, the fellow that, that had brought him there, um, brought him, brought him to me, uh, to, to see if we could hire him. Well, he wasn't even 18 at the time. And I, and I said, no, we can't, we can't do it. And, um, and he came oh. back like on his 18th birthday and, 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 and I said, Well, you've got to go through all of our courses first. And he said, Well, how much is that? I said, $1,180. And he goes, I don't have $1,180. And I said, Well, come back when you have it. And the next morning, he laid the cash on my desk. Wow. And I said, Where did you get that? He said, At the bank. I said, What? Do you rob a bank or what? Where did, how did you get it at the bank? He said, I convinced the banker to loan me the money. I'm like,
0: <laughs> Wow. Sounds familiar. <laughs>
1: you could rely on Tony and a few, a handful of people I had uh, as salespeople. But at near the end of the month, if I was trying to reach a certain objective to have a certain amount of people in seminars, um, I'd say, "Guys, we need uh, we need another hundred tickets sold." And man, they would go out, and next morning they got a hundred tickets sold. You know, they were just they were lethal weapons. You know, I called them. They they just went out and did it. So it, it, it doesn't surprise me what Tony has done. Uh in a way it surprises me. Other ways it doesn't surprise wouldn't
0: me. Wouldn't so have predicted ready. it, but it doesn't surprise you, it sounds like. The what? You said you wouldn't have predicted it, but it also oh, no. it. at the same time it doesn't surprise you.
1: Yeah, and it kind of makes you proud, you know. You you think that maybe, just maybe you had some hand in helping him get where he wants to go or where he is now. Um cool. you know, because you you trained him
0: initially. Maybe you'd have done it anyway,
1: you know, who knows? But uh, I like to think I had a little bit to do with it, maybe.
0: We talked about your friendship with Jim Rohn. We talked about the m- mentorship that you gave uh, to Tony Robbins. You shared your your book reading, which I didn't, didn't realize you've read that many books. What book has influenced you the most? Or You can give me a couple if you think there's a couple that really stand out. Are there any books that more than any other stand out as most influential?
1: Yeah, there's one that changed my life completely um i was looking for a lot of answers i i think more on a spiritual level uh i went to uh, pretty much every church that i could find uh every denomination every, i mean everywhere some some that were a little weird and <laughs> some were uh, interesting and and great um and and i was a little confused because i wasn't sure which way to go and i wanted to figure it out just in case I didn't make it through the next day. I wanted to make sure I'm all right with whoever's up there, you know. And um, a friend of mine, we were driving down the street in Phoenix, Arizona. I remember the street we're on and everything. And he said, hey, do you read much? And I said, yeah, I read a lot. He reaches over, opens his glove compartment, hands me this book. And he said, here, read this. You're going to love it. And the book was called Three Magic Words by U.S. Anderson.
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: he wrote several books, and that's still in bookstores today. It was written, I think, in 1957. I read the first page, and I got chills. I'm going, this is it. This is it. I don't know why. I just felt like this book had something that I needed. And I went home and went out by the pool, and um, I read the book, and then I sat and looked at the stars for about six hours after that and um my whole life changed i saw everything in a whole different perspective so that book probably was a turning point for me um and i you know i've read a lot of other great books um when i went through some changes in my life um and and not sure what direction i wanted to go um i took those 4000 books that i'd read and piled them in my driveway and gave them all away and except for 13 of them and which I I couldn't part with. And one of them was three magic words uh, because each one of those had had some effect on my life. The rest of them, the rest of them, I could look at the book and remember what was in it and things that I underlined and stuff like that that was going to apply to my life. And, but yet my my life wasn't working. Uh, Wasn't working the way I thought it should be. I wasn't happy. Um, I was divorced. My two children lived in another part of the country. And I live in a big home in Sedona, Arizona, all by myself and and i'm trying to I'm trying to teach happiness and success and here I am not happy and not really successful like you would think I would be financially, yes, I was fine, but not personally
0: mm.
1: and that was a, a big turning point for me um, but um, you know you never know where ideas are going to come from. you know that book was one, the fellow that um, Came by and sat with me for two hours. Uh, I remember his first name. I never saw him again, ever. Uh, never talked to him again. So it's like a messenger that shows up for you, and they're everywhere. It might be somebody you pass on the street that says a few words to you, um, but you, uh, you just never know. I mean, I was I was walking down the street in Toronto one day. We, my, my friend and I, who we were doing a seminar together. We'd walked out about ten miles and um, or felt like it probably wasn't ten miles, but it was a long ways out. and we we're heading back and he said, gosh, we're running late. Uh, we need to get back there quickly. So we're walking really fast down uh, Young Street I think we were on. <clears throat> and all of a sudden I feel this presence behind me and it, it I mean it was so close it was like I cut my eyes a little bit and here's a face right here mm-hmm. walking right in step with me. and I, I started to turn around going hey, Back off a little bit. And I'm, you know, I'm six foot four and I was, I was pretty, pretty good uh, gait I was, I was uh, pacing at. And um, this guy was right up with me. And just before I started to turn around, he said, And God created man. And then another voice coming from him, a different voice, he said, Well, I know that. And I thought, Well, this is weird. And then he says, and God created woman. And then the other voice goes, well, I know that too. And then the other voice says, and then God created fruit. And the other voice goes, what does that have to do with anything? And he says, well, inside the fruit, there's a seed. And he said, if you plant it, it will grow. And if you don't, it won't. And it, it startled me. It's, I stopped and, and just in a deep thought, and this guy turned and went the other direction. And my first thought was, hey, I want to catch up with him and finish this little, <laughs> little thing he's doing here. But I couldn't quit thinking about that. And then I thought about the seed that we plant. You know, whether it's a, a seed of a fruit tree or a seed of something in your mind. That you're planting in a decision. It's the foundation of your life. And if you plant it, it will grow. And if you don't, it won't. And if and if you don't plant it and nourish it, it'll die, just like a plant will die. So you gotta plant the seed. But where do you plant it? You plant it in dirt, where do you put it? Well, I have a philosophy. A friend of mine asked me one day, he said, What what does the word resourceful mean to you? I said, oh, being productive, using your imagination, you know, that, that type of thing. He said, oh, I just think it's an interesting word. So, again, I'm, it's repeating in my mind. And I go home that night. I look it up in the dictionary. And resourceful means once again full of source. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So I looked up source. And it says where all things originate. That's it. Not, not some things, but all things. I'm going, wow, it depends on what you think source is. But that that's it's pretty incredible. And I kept looking for that, another definition of that. And I was in a small town in England about a year after that. And I saw this antique bookstore and I walk in and there's a dictionary about this thick. It looked like it was hundreds of years old. I don't know how old it was, but it had a sign that said, do not open, do not touch. And I thought that was for the British people, not for me. So I (laughs) I carefully opened it and looked up the word source. And the origin that I found of the word source is love, once again, full of love. So all things originate in love. So where do you plant your seed? When you fall in love with something enough that you'll make a decision, it's no less than having that. You've planted that seed in love. Your only other option is to plant it in fear. and It's not going to grow. So if you plant it, it will grow. If you don't, it won't.
0: Man, so powerful. Well, Jim, thank you so much for being on the show. You can find Jim at jimbritt.com. He's also on social media, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Where else or where's the best place for them to get in touch with you if they want to learn more? From you?
1: Well, you know, LinkedIn, I have uh, uh, five days a week, I have video posts up there. So if you want to learn little tips there, that's on LinkedIn. You can look me up there. I'm on Facebook off and on, not as much, not as active there. Jimbritt.com is, you know, all my programs and things. I've got a new program I just came out with called Cracking the Rich Code. And it helps people. It's a four-month program to reprogram your subconscious regarding your relationship with money. And that's at either at com or crackingtherichcode.com. And you can reach me if you want to send me a, an email or something. It's uh, support at com. And you can find one of, I believe it's, is it 13 books, 13 bestsellers? <laughs> I just, I just came, out, yeah, I came out with two more. Okay. Uh, the, the last two, I'm not even sure they're up yet on Amazon, but one of them is called The Entrepreneur why 90% fail and how to avoid the mistakes that they made. And the other one's called directing the movies of your subconscious mind. Yep. Uh, those are just out. If you want to read the best book you've ever read in your whole life, read rings of truth. That's my first book. That's my story.
0: So. Oh, I wish I would have known. Cause I got, I, I read, uh, you know, cracking the rich code. So, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll check out that one now. One of book we didn't talk about, which isn't your book, which I know you, you is, is a meaningful book to you. Otto is a yogi, which oh, yeah. it's, this book keeps on getting mentioned in my life. You talk about how signs like I, I've heard you talk about it. I interviewed a guy who I'm actually airing his episode, part two of his episode next week, and he swears by this book. So that's another. Oh, I gave I gave away cases
1: and cases of that book. That was one of my 13. It, was year. it just it, 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 it makes you it stretches your mind and makes you think. And it was a very, very thought-provoking book. I loved it.
0: Yeah. Mm. And, the, and the lights are flickering in the background. So maybe the lights are telling, telling <laughs> me, I got to read that book. Jim, super honored and humbled to learn from you and just dive in and hear your story and the, the insights and the nuggets that you shared, not only on this call, but just throughout your career. Uh, I know that that millions of people are grateful for all the work that you've done. And I'm glad that we had this conversation today. Thank you for being on Inside Out.
1: Thank you, Billy. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.